Welcome back to the Paper Tiger podcast. The Paper Tiger is a student newspaper of Lake Wilmerding High School. This year, we've launched the podcast to give a behind-the-scenes look at how the paper functions and to discuss issues that are important to Bay Area youth. I'm Caroline Kreutzen, co-editor of the Paper Tiger Online. And I'm Gabe Castro-Root, co-editor-in-chief. In the fall, the Paper Tiger added a new section called 21 Places to Go Around the Bay Area, where our staff writes reflections and recommendations on some of their favorite activities and outings. Today, three members of the Paper Tiger staff share insights on their top destinations in San Francisco. This is Primo Legasso Goldberg, our co-editor-in-chief, reading his article, The Sunset District, Parks, Beaches, and Local Hubs Linked by the End Judah. 2020's COVID-19 pandemic has brought with it a unique set of experiences. Leading or attending meetings and classes from your couch, awkward air hugs with friends you haven't seen for months, and for many, a blanketing feeling of isolation. But amidst this mixed bag of challenges float new opportunities for adventure and exploration, even in one's own city. San Francisco's Sunset District, affectionately called the Sunset, is bordered on the north by Lincoln Way, on the west by the Great Highway, and on the south by Quintira Street and Slope Boulevard. The far eastern reaches of the Sunset end just west of Mount Sutro. Locals and maps refer to the Sunset's two parts. The district is split by 19th Avenue and Park Presidio. Everything to the west, towards the ocean, is the outer sunset, and everything to the east, towards downtown SF, is denominated the inner sunset. Though the sunset might not grace the covers of brightly colored tourist brochures, and though it is largely residential, it still offers a variety of fun activities to fill a day. From quaint cafes and bakeries to views of the city from Parnassus Hill and the ever-turbulent waters of Ocean Beach, with a little willingness to explore and the right information, the sunset can be transformed into a magical adventure. The N. Judah Muni line, though almost guaranteed to run at least 10 minutes behind schedule, is your best bet to cut straight through the sunset. Not only will the end take you past crepe shops, cafes, bakeries, and boutiques, but you also might make a new friend along the way as well. From the hordes of young medical students necklaced with their lanyards who are commuting to UCSF, elderly women with pull carts overflowing with mysteriously filled plastic bags, groups of 20 elementary schoolers bubbling with the excitement of a field trip, to at least one pair of tourists, usually lost, trying to make their way to Golden Gate Park, the cast of characters on the end is an attraction unto itself. The more urban inner sunset is abundant with food and coffee to warm your chilly, fog-soaked bones. The well-known Crepes on Coal at Coal Street and Call Street is a longtime local favorite, an ideal for a filling breakfast, brunch, or lunch. Two iconic SF bakeries also make their home in the inner sunset. Tart to Tart on Irving Street and 8th Avenue is perfect for an espresso and fruit tart. Arsmendi, a bakery on 9th Avenue and Irving, is an excellent stop for home-style hand-baked pastries, delicious bread, and veggie pizzas. Local secret, the Game Parlor, 
on Irving and 15th Avenue is a fun, family-friendly comfort food eatery and game room with over a hundred game boards for customers to enjoy with their food and milkshake. Deboard the N at Carl and Cole to take a lovely stroll, stopping to eat along the way and appreciate some of the quintessential San Francisco residential architecture. The Outer Sunset is a largely residential neighborhood along San Francisco's western coast. Edging the roaring waters of the Pacific is the Great Highway, a two-mile, four-lane, straight-shot highway along the margin of the beach that, while normally bustling with traffic from Golden Gate Park to Land's End during the pandemic, has been closed to car traffic to give people space to exercise during the pandemic. Pedestrians, appropriately socially distanced, walk, jog, and run along the highway. The only wheels allowed are bicycles, skates, and skateboards. Pre-pandemic, Ocean Beach drew throngs of locals and tourists alike to shiver and enjoy its damp, foggy shores and rough tides. From beachgoers enjoying quiet picnics in the mild sunlight, joggers dodging the lapping waves, to wetsuit-clad surfers carrying their boards to launch out through the shore foam and ride the big waves, all manner of people find enjoyment on the broad expanse of the shoreline. During the pandemic, Ocean Beach is still a hot or cold spot for those looking to get out of the house. The opening of the Great Highway enlarges the range of leisure possibilities. In the fresh morning, while the chill of dew still hangs in the air and the sky is barely pink, the Great Highway offers an excellent path for a morning run, with its four lanes and smooth pavement inviting a couple of friends for a quick two to four mile jog in the cool dawn is an energizing way to start off another week in quarantine. And if you're in need of a quick break along the way, the beach awaits just a couple of steps to the side. On days when the sun rises high and cuts through the morning fog, and even on days when it doesn't, bikers and skaters traverse the length of the highway with ample room on both sides. Along Ocean Beach, you are free to glide down the tarmac at your own pace, breathing in the salty air and watching the quaint outer sunset houses pass by. As the sun dips below the horizon, an ominous wall of white-gray fog billows its way in from the Pacific up the shore and shrouds the Great Highway and the entire Outer Sunset District in mystery. On the wide, sandy beach, rowdy, tipsy teenagers might be reveling in a midnight bonfire, but the shoreline is not the only place to enjoy the cool night air. I have spent many a night during the pandemic strolling six feet apart down the great highway with friends, blasting music from our speakers into the darkness. The fog hangs heavy, and the beds of succulents along the roadside glisten in the yellow streetlights. At intersections, respites of light amid stretches of dark, haunting road, the red and green lights hang in the air and cast long, disappearing shadows. It feels as if you've been transported to another world entirely. Though a little bit spooky, the otherworldly atmosphere is well worth a long walk in the deep of night with the occasional sleepless biker hurtling out of the fog and back in again.
This is Bridget Martin reading her article, Golden Gate Park, a natural haven within the city. Nestled between San Francisco's Sunset and Richmond districts and stretching from the western hills of the city to the Pacific Ocean, Golden Gate Park includes 1,017 acres of lush greenery, cultural and recreational facilities, hidden gardens, and winding walking paths. The park is located at the heart of the city, a place in constant use by denizens of the city on the bay, where families enjoy picnics and games, rollerbladers whiz through its streets, and anglers dip their bait into a lake and fish. So how did this precious public park come to be, in a city notorious for competition for its real estate? In the 1870s, the city of San Francisco decided to allocate a vast tract of land for a public park. The city hired noted surveyor and engineer William Hammond Hall to transform the strip of land now known as the Panhandle and the vast expanse of sand dunes, which used to stretch from the inland hills to the ocean, into a beautiful park. This space was gradually transformed and preserved for public use and recreation. By 1879, under Hall, 155,000 trees had been planted, the trees which we now think of as native to Golden Gate Park, such as the eucalyptus, Monterey pine, and Monterey cypress, joined the real native species, such as the oaks. The park flourished as a recreational haven, a jewel in the city. However, in 1906, it served as a different kind of haven, an emergency refuge. The Great Earthquake and Fire of 1906 left 250,000 San Franciscans instantly homeless. To escape the conflagration in the city, 40,000 people fled to Golden Gate Park. Eventually, in a joint effort, the San Francisco Relief Co Corporation, the San Francisco Parks Commission, and the Army installed a vast grid of tents, later replaced by wooden cabins, in Golden Gate Park to house people displaced by the fires. All this temporary housing was removed from the park by mid-1908. Today, Golden Gate Park is a place where San Francisco residents and tourists alike gather to enjoy the outdoors. My favorite spaces in Golden Gate Park are its beautiful gardens, specifically three gardens near the 9th Avenue and Lincoln entrance to the park, the Botanical Garden, the Shakespeare Garden, and the Japanese Tea Garden. The National AIDS Memorial Grove, conceived in 1988 and gradually created throughout the 1990s, is also nearby. If you're planning to explore these three gardens on foot, you might stop at one of the many eateries and cafes surrounding 9th Avenue and grab a quick snack. After crossing Lincoln and 9th Avenue, you will be hit with sounds of children screaming excitedly and music pumping out of open car windows. However, a place of discovery and peace, the Botanical Gardens, lies immediately on your left. When entering the Botanical Gardens, the sounds of the city fade away, getting softer as you walk further into the unique garden. San Francisco's Botanical Garden is home to 26 thematic gardens containing plant species that can be grown in San Francisco's particular climate. Ask for a map at the front and then spend as long as you wish exploring the flora. The gardens are planted to represent different geographical locations, taxonomies, and themes. Explore the cloud forest of the Andes or delve into the fragrance garden. Take a moment to stop and reflect at the moon viewing garden, whose Japanese plant species and stone pagodas provide a sense of tranquility. If you're traveling with younger explorers, trek through the entire garden to find the children's garden, where you will find homemade musical instruments to play and piles of wood chips perfect for jumping in. By the time you discover this fun-filled garden, though, if you're with a little adventurer, they may be ready for their afternoon nap, as you will have hiked about half a mile through beautifully treacherous terrain.
The Botanical Gardens is free to members, school groups, residents of San Francisco City and County, and to those receiving food stamps. On the second Tuesday of each month, the gardens are free to all. Visiting the gardens is also free between 7.30 a.m. and 9 a.m. This is the time when many birdwatchers visit, ready with binoculars and cameras to enjoy the avian residents and visitors. The garden is always free to birds. After exiting the botanical gardens, follow the winding cement paths to discover on your left the charmingly hidden Shakespeare garden. As you walk down the brick path running through this garden, you will be transported back to Old England. As you reach the end of the walkway, you will discover an alluring brick stage and find yourself face to face with the stone bust of Shakespeare himself. If you feel so inclined, you can even put on an impromptu performance for other visitors. If the performing arts are not for you, this serene garden is the perfect place to enjoy a picnic lunch. After saying goodbye to Shakespeare's garden, head over to the Japanese tea garden to find a moment of meditation and quiet joy. The Japanese tea garden was created in 1894 as part of the Japanese village at the California Midwinter International Exposition, also known as the World's Fair. After the fair was over, the Japanese landscape designer Makoto Hajiwara decided to transform the village into a permanent garden. He expanded the original plan for the garden from one acre to five and imported koi and many artifacts. To oversee the gardens, Hajiwara placed his home, a contractual arrangement with the city, in a compound on site. Hajiwara died in 1925. His family continued to live in their house and his daughter oversaw the garden. Hajiwara had immigrated to San Francisco in 1878 and he became a treasured landscape designer in the Bay Area. Tragically, in 1942, during World War II, the Hajiwara family were turned upon and lost their home. They were imprisoned in a U.S. internment camp. Their home, along with all of the Japanese treasures collected by Hajiwara in the tea garden, were destroyed. The tea garden was rebranded the Oriental Tea Garden. The garden we now know is the rebuilt Japanese tea garden. While exploring this peaceful garden, make sure to also reflect on its painful history. Upon entering the Japanese tea garden, you'll find yourself at the base of the arch of its renowned moon bridge. As you scale this steep bridge, look down to watch the vibrant ripple of the water beneath you and the reflection of yourself surrounded by verdant greenery. After climbing down the other side of the bridge, wander through the gardens to admire the unique plant species native to Japan. End your visit by stopping at the tea house inside the garden, where you can enjoy a cup of tea, a bowl of miso soup, fresh mochi, and fortune cookies. Some even credit Hajiwara with inventing the fortune cookie, which he based on the traditional Japanese cookie, the senbei. He added a little vanilla to appeal to American tastes and thought of putting the fortune inside. As you sip your tea, think about Makoto Hajiwara and thank him for his sublime sensibility and the garden he created as well as for your fortune cookie. The tea house is constructed to be an open-air deck, making it the perfect socially distant restaurant to visit. The most exciting feature of Golden Gate Park is how you will never stop discovering activities to try out and places to visit. I strongly urge everyone to take a stroll through the park in order to discover your personal favorite garden, scenery, and outdoor activity to do, and continue to uncover the rich history behind one of San Francisco's biggest attractions. And here's Caroline, reading her article, San Francisco's Crosstown Trail, A Ramble to Nowhere. 
The San Francisco Crosstown Trail, a 17-mile diagonal trek across SF, offers a stunning hardcore hike and new perspectives on the city I know so well. The map for the hiking route was released in June of 2019 as a part of the city's Green Connections Plan, a city initiative to increase access to green spaces within SF. The trail starts in the southeast corner of the city at Candlestick Point Recreation Area and ends in the northwest corner at Land's End, though it can be hiked in either direction. According to the trail's website, hikers spend about 45% of their time on sidewalks, 40% on trails, and 15% on paved paths as they wind their way up and down 2,600 feet of elevation gain on San Francisco's notorious hills. I started my hike with a friend at 8 a.m. at Candlestick Point. Local unhoused people commonly use the road surrounding the park as a place to sleep. As a path wound its way directly past the encampment, I felt like an invader as I hiked by people's morning routines. At the time, it felt inappropriate that a tourism trail walked right through a place people call home, as if they were on display. Looking back, I still don't totally know what I think, but the starting point was an important part of my experience on the trail. Heading inland, we left the Bayview behind and entered Visitation Valley, where we trekked uphill through a quiet residential neighborhood and passed through a couple of single-lot city parks whose only occupants were practicing Tai Chi, a common early morning activity in SF parks. The day before, I had read a couple of articles on the Crosstown Trail from travel and local city blogs. The consensus seemed to be that the first section of the trail, which ends at Glen Park Bart, was boring. It was just something that you had to get through to enjoy the rest of the spectacular trail. As we hiked up to the top of McLaren Park, I found some fundamental problems with their conclusion. I live in the inner Richmond and I spend very little time in the southeast of the city. I really enjoyed exploring neighborhoods I had never seen before. Moreover, the view from McLaren Park is spectacular. I also think it is short-sighted to dismiss the reality of people's lives in the most economically disadvantaged part of the city as boring. The trail exists to connect people to parts of the city they don't often visit, not pass judgment on them. On the other side of McLaren Park, which is far larger than I realized, we walked down to Glen Park Bart. From there, we were sent immediately up Glen Park Canyon. After conquering the long, slow uphill through the canyon, which only added to my already mounting leg pain, the trail led us into Midtown Terrace, the neighborhood behind Twin Peaks. There, we ran into a very friendly outdoor cat who brushed her white fur everywhere, stalking after us, seeking further attention. Considering the scope of the trail and all the sights we saw on the hike, it seemed silly, but stopping to pet the cat was one of my personal highlights. The random encounter felt like a snapshot of everyday life in Midtown Terrace. I also happen to love cats. The overhead map of the route does not do justice to the amount of time that the trail spends winding through Forest Hill in the sunset after leaving Midtown Terrace. Be prepared to make seemingly endless circles on twisting roads that stand in contrast to the straight lines and boxes of the rest of the city. Between the turns, Grandview Park, one of my favorite stops, offers a breathtaking view of the entire north end of the city. From the tiny park set on the hill accessible only by two steep sets of stairs, we could see our final destination, Land's End. To my tired body, the assurance of a destination in sight was a great distraction from the miles left in between. Once through the sunset, we strolled around Stowe Lake and into the Rose Garden as the trail ambled through Golden Gate Park. I was newly invigorated by our lunch stop outside in the inner sunset and the promise of an end to come. 
On the north side of the park, the trail marched us down the tree-filled median between Park Presidio and Funston before meandering down Lobos Creek Boardwalk in the Presidio. As we exited Lobos Creek Valley, we entered Sea Cliff, walking along the road bordering the cliffs above Baker Beach. However, we could only catch glimpses of the ocean in between the multi-million dollar houses sitting above the beach. As we walked by each house, I couldn't help but think about where we had started our hike mere hours before. So little time had passed, but the scene in front of us was so starkly different. It reminded me of the vast but often unrecognized inequality that exists within our city. Uh, finally, we reached the Land's End Trail, the final leg of the hike. As a relatively active person, I was not prepared for how exhausted I was at this point. Despite the familiar city setting, this is not a hike to be undertaken lightly, a sentiment my friend and I admitted during these last miles. Still enjoying ourselves, we stopped to admire a clear view of the Golden Gate Bridge and twisted around tourists doing the same. This route, which I often run on my own, felt like coming home after the long day of walking. We arrived at Land's End sore, tired, and with about six hours of hiking under our belts. This is not a hike to be underestimated, but it is definitely something that every SF local should try. I would not recommend it to the casual tourist who would spend 17 miles looking for a stunning conclusion that simply isn't there. It is a beautiful, insightful peek into the diversity of people, cityscapes, and green spaces that exist within our city. The trail leaves you with more questions and answers and the distinct feeling that your journey isn't really over. Thanks for listening to the Paper Tiger podcast. If you're spending this holiday season at home and want to get outside, visit one of these places or check out the articles on other locations, which can be found on our website, lwhspapertiger.org. Make sure to tune in to our next episode and follow LW Paper Tiger on Instagram. Thanks for sticking with us through our first semester of episodes. We'll see you in the new year.